Well, good morning, everyone. So grateful to be with you today. Happy Independence Day. Uh, as Brian said, happy birthday, America. And if you have served in our armed forces at any time, a veteran or actively serving, we just want to thank you for your service. Thank you uh, for defending our liberties and our freedoms that we enjoy uh, here today. And we honor you. We respect you, as the video said. We pray for you. Uh, so we thank you for that. And uh, today we're going to be diving back into the book of 1 John. Uh, this is actually our last sermon in the study of this book, and then next week we'll resume uh, the Olivet Discourse. But I'm excited to spend the next few moments just hearing from John and his, his final words in his first epistle to uh, this church in Ephesus and how we can take what he is teaching and apply it, and it's relevant for us uh, even today. So I'm excited to, uh, to do that. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through uh, 21. And so as you're making your way there and before we dive in, let's just ask the Lord to uh, be with us uh, during this time. Father, uh, you are good. And we are so grateful that for those of us who have trusted in your son Jesus as Savior, we can confidently say uh, that we are children of you, that you have welcomed us to your table and we enjoy fellowship with you. And God, we can confidently say that in Christ you have declared us righteous. We are so grateful uh, for that. Lord, as we spend some time looking at the final words of John and his first epistle, God, we just pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to hear your word, to grow. God, and not only that, but to have further confidence in Christ. This is a common theme throughout this epistle. So we want to spend these, these next few moments, God, just leaning into that thought. Allow me to preach what is true, what is right. God, impress your spirit upon us today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was around 12 years old or so, my family and I took a vacation to Virginia Beach, Virginia. And this was the first time, uh, so I was preteen, maybe 11, 12 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. This was the first time that I had experienced seeing the ocean. It was, it was phenomenal. Just that body of water, just as far as you can see. It's, it's really an impressive sight, especially when you're seeing it for the first time. And during this vacation, there were a couple of things that my family and I learned very quickly. The first thing that we learned is that the ocean waters are powerful particularly when it comes to the waves. Now, as a preteen boy, uh, although I was, I was never a lightweight, I wasn't as big as I am now, I, I remember just being pummeled by these waves one after the other, almost as if I was in a WWF, well, when I was a kid, it was WWF, uh, in, a, in a WWF wrestling ring being pile-driven by one of these pro wrestlers, like one after the other. I'd stand up, catch my breath, and then another one would be slamming back down on me. It was, it was awesome. It was so, so much fun, but a little bit scary all at the same time. Then the, the second lesson we learned was about the, the tides, how interesting the tides can be as they're moving and coming in and going out. It's an interesting thing because the sandbar that we played in was, you could play there fine most of the day, but when the tide came in, it was, went from knee deep to over your head or chest or neck deep. It was, it was just a little bit of a different scenario than what we were currently used to. And I don't think anyone experienced this more than my dad did concerning the tides. Because he was a big strapping guy. And he actually had to uh, kind of whisk my sisters out of the ocean at one, at one time. So you have two younger sisters. So at that time, they would have been around eight or nine years old, 10 years old. And as we were playing on the sandbar, we noticed that the water that was once knee deep was now about chest deep. So we had to start making our way back to shore because the soon it would be over our head. 
See, what happened though is when you are walking out to the sandbar, you kind of had to walk through a valley. You couldn't see this on top of the water until you're actually walking in it. So you would start onto the shore, into the water. You would kind of dip down a little bit and then come back up onto the sandbar. And that's where we would play. So in the middle of this valley, it was, it was well over our heads. And so my dad was probably up to his nose or maybe even his chin at this point. So my sisters who are generally strong swimmers at our, at our pool in our hometown in Indiana, it's a little bit different swimming in the open ocean. And so my dad, being the, the strapping guy that he was and is, he just picked my sisters up on his shoulders, just like this, both of them, and started walking back to the shore. Now, I was maybe 10 or so feet back, and it looked like he was just going through the water with ease. He was not even breaking a sweat. And so my sisters were on his shoulders, and they were laughing and talking, how much fun they're having on, on dad's shoulders, making their way back to shore. And, and so I didn't realize until about 25 years later, I actually had this conversation recently with my dad, how, how scared he actually was and how tired he was getting walking back to shore. It was about a 50-yard or so walk back to, uh, to the beach where we were sitting. I had no idea as a kid like how, how labored he was, how tired he was getting, how scared he was becoming, because not only was he now worried about my sisters, he's now worried about himself. Like, how can I make it? He's on his tiptoes, just keeping his nose above the water. But as a kid, you know, your dads are legendary. He was just going through with ease. And the, the image from that moment that's really kind of burned into my brain is my two sisters. Like, them just having not a care in the world. My dad's literally like, I hope I make it back to shore. And my sisters are just having a, the best time of their lives, like hanging on, on dad's shoulders. Like just the, the confidence that they had, that they knew that they were going to be safe. Like there, there was nothing to worry about because they were on dad's shoulders. They had confidence, supreme confidence that my dad would protect them. And isn't it amazing what confidence can do? Like when we have confidence in something, it brings a sense of peace and even a joy into our life. I just, I remind that with my sisters. They had no sense of the danger that was around them. They were just confident and happy and joyful and peaceful that, that they were with their father. Confidence is a pretty big deal. And when we think about the book of 1 John, confidence is exactly what the theme of this book is. It's our confidence in Christ. And so we also see that John, although he's articulated this main point all throughout the book, he's actually going to give us his purpose statement, the reason for writing the book, the purpose of his penmanship is located in chapter 5, verse 13. In verse 13, he gives us the reason. He says this, this in verse number 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, when John is mentioning these things, he's talking about the content of the epistle. I'm writing this epistle, this letter to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. But as I said, John has articulated this all throughout the book. This is not the first time we're hearing about eternal life in Christ. This is just the purpose statement. And so John is trying to bolster their confidence. Because remember, you have the secessionists, you have the Gnostics, you have docetism permeating the church, and he's letting them know no matter what heresy may be infiltrating the church, no matter how these teachers may be leading you astray, know that in Christ you are secure. Know that in Christ you have confidence. Know that in Christ you can have assurance of your salvation. Not only the readers of the letter in the first century, but also you and I as well. John is bolstering our faith. He's infusing this confidence into our heart. But notice all the different places where John is leading up to sharing his purpose, where he's focusing and zeroing in on this idea of eternal life. 
We go back to chapter 1, verse 2. John brings this idea to life. Life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then you go to chapter 2, verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, he being God the Father, eternal life. And then chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live eternally through him, as we see in context. And then in the chapter we're now, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. The life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. So John has been beating this drum throughout the entire epistle. And now in verse 13 says, hey, just so you know, I've written all these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. And how, how, confidence, how confidence would arise in one who would read this letter. He wants to make sure the believers know this. So with that in mind, let's open up the word and let's spend some time reading the remainder of, uh, of this epistle as John closes uh, his final thoughts in this first epistle to this church. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit uh, sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, Jesus, the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So as John concludes this letter, he shares some final thoughts. And there's at least three applications that we can pull from this text. And the, these three application points, it's going to serve as the outline for our sermon today. Let me just list the three applications that, that we see in the text. The first one is this. Confidence in Christ leads to bold prayer. That's number one. Number two, confidence in Christ leads us to confront sin. And number three, confidence in Christ leads us to personal holiness. But let's talk about application point number one. Confidence in Christ leads to bold prayer. See, in Verses 14 and 15, John shares that because of the confidence one has in Christ, the assurance of salvation, it will ignite a passion for a robust prayer life. Listen again to what John says in these two verses. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, at first glance, it can, this can be a bit confusing because it might sound as if John is saying that we have a personal genie God, and if we rub the magic lamp, God comes out of the magic lamp and, and asks, how many wishes do we desire? But that's not exactly what John is talking about. See, John is, is actually saying that because of our assurance, our confidence in Christ, 
We are boldly going to approach God in his throne room and asking our petitions before him. And he's going to answer those as he sees best fit. This is what the writer Hebrew says, that we boldly approach the throne room of grace and we seek to have mercy and help in our time of need. And so we know because of our confidence in Christ that God will answer our prayers according to his purpose and plan, but not necessarily according to our own desires and wants. So even in his gospel, John is reflecting on the teaching of Christ when Jesus was teaching about himself being the vine and his fellow believers being uh, the branches. And he's uh, entertaining this idea of prayer. And in John 15, 7, Jesus says, and again recorded by John, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This sounds very similar to what John is teaching the church in Ephesus in 1 John chapter 5. And then in verse 16 of John 15, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, again, John is not saying, rub the magic lamp, ask God your wish, and poof, it's done for you. He's saying that when we have confidence in our Heavenly Father, we have confidence also that he's going to answer our prayers, not only for our good, but also for his glory. And so this idea is abiding in Jesus. We're abiding in Christ. And when we abide in Christ, we will see God glorified and our will and our prayer life will align with God's when we ask in the will of God in the name of Jesus. Knowing that as we approach God boldly because of our confidence in Christ, we know that God can answer our prayers. We know that God will listen to the petitions of our heart. We've seen how he's interacted in redemptive history with others. We know that he can answer our prayers. This reminds me a lot of my grandma Omi. This is my dad's mother. She'll be celebrating her 90th birthday this August in just a, you know, six weeks or so. And for 50 years, and the best I'm able to tell, for 50 years every single day, she prayed for my grandpa Jack's salvation, her husband. They were married almost 60 years. And every single day she would boldly enter into God's throne and list her petitions before the Lord. And he was always at the top of her list. And she had this confidence in Christ that, God, you can do anything. God, I know you can answer my prayers. I know you can hear me. I'm one of your daughters. I know that you can answer my prayers. So every single day with that confidence in her heart, she approached the throne room of grace. And after 50 years of diligent, faithful, bold prayer, in his upper 70s, just about seven or eight years before he passed away, my grandpa received Jesus as his Savior and Lord. It was an amazing day. And my grandma, every single day, just walked into the throne room every day and just prayed boldly, God, just please save Jack. Allow your spirit to redeem him from his sin. And God answered her prayer. But the boldness was fueled by her confidence in Christ. She knew that he could do it. She knew that he could. So she kept going every single day because confidence in Christ leads to a bold prayer life. And allow your confidence in Christ to motivate you to enter into that throne room every single day. Go to that prayer closet, wherever it may be, and continue to pray every single day. Confidence in Christ leads to bold prayer. John talks about this as point number one. But the second way we see confidence impacting us is in how we confront sin. See, see confidence in Christ leads us, motivates us to confront sin. So you'll notice in the next few verses, verses 16 through 19, some very uncomfortable words that John begins to pen here. It, it causes a little bit of discomfort, but if we can absorb the truth that John is teaching, there's life. It's life-giving. Listen to what John says again in, in these handful of verses. 
If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask or he shall pray, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. Now, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, there's a lot of confusion and even some debate on what John is actually saying in these verses. Because if we just pulled these verses out of context with the rest of the epistle— It would sound as if John is saying there are certain sins that if a believer commits, you can no longer go to heaven. If there are other sins that a believer commits, it's it's okay, you can go to heaven. But that's not what John's talking about. He does talk about the sin that does not lead to death and the sin that does lead to death. So let's take a few moments to talk about both of these. Let's talk first about the sins that do not lead to death. So you will notice in the text that John says when you see a brother sinning, a sin that does not lead to death— Other followers, other believers are to pray for that individual to repent, to turn from their sin and turn back to the Lord. Now, the key word in this text that we need to understand is the word brother. See, in the Greek, that is adelphos. John is talking about the spiritual brotherhood. So it's any man or woman who places their faith in Christ is a part of the adelphos, the spiritual brotherhood. And he says, when you see one of the Adelphos, the spiritual brothers, committing an overt sin, pray for them. Now, the reason I say overt is, so this would be an action or something said or done. The reason we would say overt is because it's really hard to see the sinful thoughts and attitude of a person. So this would be an overt sin. When you see this, pray for them. Now, he's also acknowledging, and I feel like fits well with his theology, that believers were going to wrestle with sin. We see that throughout his letter. If anyone sins— we have an advocate with the Father. He, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. We see it throughout the letter. But he's saying we do not make it, especially believers, we do not make it a lifestyle or a habit of sinning. Doesn't mean we wrestle. Doesn't mean we won't have temptations. Doesn't mean we won't sin. But in verse number 18, he says we're not going to be characterized with a lifestyle of sin. That's the doctrine of regeneration. But when we see brothers fellow Christians wrestling with sin, our response as believers, as brothers or sisters with this person is to pray. There's a couple of things that excite me about this. Number one, it encourages me that I'm not alone. When I'm wrestling with sin, when I'm dealing with a certain temptation in my life, I I know and I have this confidence and this assurance that I have other brothers or sisters in my life praying for me, speaking life into me, encouraging me, counseling me through the sinful areas that that I'm struggling with. I'm excited about that. I think it should excite all of us. Another truth that that really just kind of sticks with me through this text is that my natural response, our natural response, when we see someone wrestling with sin should be prayer. The way we confront this, the first and primary way John says this is to pray. Now, maybe a conversation needs to happen. You know, maybe we have to, to go to this individual and, and we have to confront with a conversation. And maybe church discipline is going to be a part of the process of confronting sin. That may need to happen. But John says, when you see a brother sinning, pray. When you see someone wrestling with sin, pray. I think that should be all of our responses. However, oftentimes I think, I think other than prayer, there are some other things that creep up. I think oftentimes instead of prayer, there's gossip. And we, we grab our phone or we hit Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever handle we're on and we just say, hey, did you see this? 
Or did you notice this person doing that? Did you hear that this person did this or said that? It's, It's gossip. So instead of praying, our natural inclination is to gossip possibly. Or maybe it's criticism. I would never do that. We've said that before, right? I would never do that. I can't believe he even went down that road. I can't even believe that he was falling. I can't believe he was even tempted by that. That would be criticism. Instead of prayer, that could be a response. Or, or even worse, maybe indifference. Maybe instead of prayer, it's indifference. Not my family. Not my church. Not my small group. Not my campus. Like we have, that would be indifference. But John says, no, no, we pray. When we see other followers wrestling with sin, we pray for them. That's how we confront. That's the very first line of defense is by praying for them. And if we're to pray for believers who have sinned, then what about the second part that John talks about in the text? What about the sins that lead to death? Well, what must be understood is John is not talking about mortal and venial sins or deadly, non-deadly sins. We need to understand that first. We also need to understand that earthly sins, different earthly sins, carry different earthly consequences. You know, for example, first-degree murder is going to carry a different earthly consequence than gossip. Both are sinful. Both separate us from God. But we need to understand that they carry different earthly consequences. We see that when we are are sin, we're sinners by nature, sinners by choice, and that sin separates us from God. And because of sin, death enters the world. So what is John talking about? If he's not talking about mortal and venial sins, what is John actually talking about then? Well, the truth is no one really knows. No one really knows. There is not consensus on this passage on what John actually means. Now, I think the first church, the first century church, they would have understood. I think the readers of this letter would have known what the sins that lead to death actually are. There's no explanation from John. So the readers obviously would have known what that meant. But I think there are at least three possibilities, and most scholars agree on these possibilities, of what John could mean in this text. Let me share the first possibility. The first possibility is it could be John referencing the secessionists or the Gnostics who have just completely uh, said Christ is not the only way to the Father. There are many ways. There's private knowledge. There's, there's docetism. God is, is not Jesus. It, it, you know, God will not inhabit uh, human form because human forms are sinful. Uh, therefore, there are many ways to heaven. So it would be a rejection of the gospel. So much so that to the point of death, they rejected the gospel to the point that they have died. And now there is now no more forgiveness of sins. This would be the sin that leads to death, a continued rejection of the gospel to the point of death. I think there's some biblical basis for that. I think another possibility that also has a biblical basis would be a believer in Christ who has committed such an egregious sin that God gave them up to temporary or physical death. And the reason we would describe this as temporary is because they would not suffer the second death. They would still be a part of the resurrection because they were a believer in Christ. But because of their sins, God removed physical life from them. And I think there's biblical precedent for this as well. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. When they uh, were not honest, they lied to the church and to God about uh, how much they sold a piece of land for and how much they kept back for themselves. And we read in Scripture that both of them died because of that sin. I think another precedent we see is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, when they were abusing the Lord's table. Pastor Jared read some of those verses for us. But in verse 30, he says, this is why many of you are weak. Some of you are, have fallen ill and some have even died. So there's a biblical precedent for this 
as well. This is what some would say are the sins that lead to death. This is just one of a few possibilities or views. Again, some biblical foundation for that as well. A third possibility would be this. It would be John referencing those who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, believe that he is the only way to the Father, but because of some unknown circumstance, some pain in their life, they have totally just abandoned the faith altogether. They said, I believe it. Jesus is the way. He's God's son. I believe in all of your theology, but I'm just not going to participate or believe or walk in it. Jesus is not the Lord of my life. This is what we would call apostasy. And I think in modern day, we've seen individuals who have completely abandoned and apostatized the faith where They've, they've lived a life that would suggest that they were following Jesus, but now they've stepped back. And I think even in the book of John, you see precedent and context for that. And I think possibility one and three are the most compelling to me. I tend to lean into number one, where it's a continual rejection of the gospel to the point of death. But I feel like one and three are very compelling for me, but all three have some kind of biblical precedent. So what do we take away? There's, there's some tough pieces to chew on. And what do we take away for, from hearing something like this? Well, I think there are two takeaways that, that you and I need to take away from reading verses 16 to 19. The first one is this. God takes sin very, very seriously. God takes sin very, very seriously. Because of our sin, it separates us from God. And apart from Christ, we are hopeless. We are hopeless. And so because of the, the individuals that we have in our life, the church family God has given us, we want to confess those sins to other people. A lot of people in our life to help us, to help us endure these temptations, to give us some kind of accountability and hope as we're walking through these scenarios and situations. Even if it's, man, I'm, I'm wrestling with this and I have, I've not committed it, but I feel this temptation in my life. I just want to bring it to the, the public, bring it to the forefront, just so I have people in my life who can help me with it because God takes it serious and I want to take it serious as well. We need to take sin very, very seriously because that's what God does. And we want to have a growing disdain for sin in our life as we grow into the image of Jesus. A second takeaway we need to have is this especially regarding the sins that lead to death, it's likely you've not committed this sin. Hopefully that brings a little bit of sigh of relief to some of us in the room. Because if you're concerned that if I, have I committed this sin, am I doing the sin that leads to death? Know that just by you being concerned about it should give you confidence that you've not committed the sin. Your concern means the Holy Spirit is in you and it's active. He's, 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 he's living in you, he's working in you, and you're sensitive to his leading. And be encouraged by that and pursue Christ-likeness and grow in your confidence in Christ. Again, this is not meant to bring fear to us, but increase our assurance and confidence that we are in Jesus. And we want to grow more and more to his image. And may we all be confident enough in our relationship with Christ that we seek to confront sin. Because confidence in Christ leads us to confront it in our heart. But not only does it lead us to have bold prayer, not only does it allow us to confront sin in our life, it also leads to personal holiness. Confidence in Christ leads to personal holiness. See, John concludes his letter by giving the reader some very simple yet very powerful and profound instructions. And in verses 20 and 21, John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Essentially what John is saying is that when followers of Christ have confidence in Christ, it leads to personal holiness. It leads us to walking away from the idols that so want to, to take cap, captive of our heart. 
And notice, says, notice that John says it's our knowing about Christ that gives us this confidence. It's our knowing that the Son of God has come that produces confidence. It's the knowing that gives us understanding of that reality. It is the knowing that He has given us truth and that we have eternal life. It's the knowing of all those truths that produce confidence that we are following the true God and that we have eternal life. There's so much assurance from what we know about God and in our position with Him. So when we are in Christ, we have absolute confidence that we will always be in Christ. And our knowingness produces confidence in our hearts. It's the knowing that leads to confidence. See, it reminds me of when I would train my, my three boys to ride bikes without training wheels. So I would get beside them and I would kind of hang on to the back of their bike seat just to provide some stability. Because you know dads in the room or moms who've taught your children to ride without training wheels— they don't have any balance yet. They don't have those core muscles. They've not developed those core muscles yet. And their feet probably aren't quite long enough to reach the, the, the ground yet. So they have, to, they have to balance themselves. You're going to provide that stability for them. And as long as, as you're hanging on to the back of their seat, they have confidence. They know you're not leaving. They have confidence. They, Dad's got me. Mom's got me. We're going to be just fine. And my boys had confidence that I wasn't going to let go until they were actually ready. And then they would have confidence that, that I was going to teach them truth and, and, and kind of warn them about the obstacles that were ahead of them on the sidewalk, mainly stopping. Because when you're trying to stop after riding your bike without training wheels, it's a different animal. Right? You don't have, you don't have those, those little wheels to balance. You know, you're trying to, trying to figure out, okay, how do I stop or how do I turn? There's some challenges ahead. So I would try and coach them through it. And they had confidence that what I was teaching them was actually true. And, and they knew this because I, I, haven't been, I haven't been unfaithful or untruthful to them in the past. They knew that what I was saying was going to be true. They also knew that if they did fall down the road, that I would be there to pick them up. I would take them to the house and either Amy, my wife, or myself would clean up their, their scrapes and put a band on it and they'd be back. They knew that that would happen if, if they were to fall. And so I'd hang on to their seat and we would begin to run together. And they knew that if I was with them, everything was good. And then the, the pedals would be a little bit easier to, to, to turn on their own. And then next thing you know, they're riding bikes without training wheels and they're out, they're going. They're, and you feel like they're just riding forever. They had confidence because of my presence with them. I think it's the same thing with us in Christ. We have confidence in Christ because of what we know about him. See, we know that when we're walking through difficulties in life, he will be there to counsel us because he's the wonderful counselor. We know that when, when we are, are going through uh, challenges in our life, that because of his grace, he's given us a church family to help us through that. We know that because of, of, of what Jesus has done for us, that he is going to, to never, ever fail us. We know that when we fall or make sinful choices, as, as John has said, little children don't sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. He's there to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have confidence in that because of what we know. He's done it before. He'll do it again. We know that he desires what's best for us because of what his word declares to us. And we know who Jesus is. We know what he's done, and that produces confidence in our hearts. See, our knowing produces confidence. How do we have knowing? How do we have this understanding? I think there's a couple of different ways. I think, first of all, it's primarily through God's word. We know about Jesus because of what his word declares. We see how he interacted with people, how he loved people, how he ministered to people. And so we know about Jesus, and that produces confidence through his word. And then we know it through experiences, not only our own, but through the experiences of others. How has Jesus walked through life with people? How has he ministered in our dark and lonely? How has he been with us through good and high, highs and lows? Like, how has God done this? And that produces confidence in our heart, knowing 
produces confidence. So we see how, how we can develop this and how Christ's presence and, and our knowing and understanding of him produces that confidence in our heart. And so as we begin to wind up here and land the plan on the sermon and, and close out our series in 1 John, how do, we, how do we synthesize this into a few applicable points? How can we apply this to our life? Let me just offer three ways that we can have this confidence and this understanding and knowing. First one is this. Learn all you can about Jesus. Learn all you can about Jesus. Grab your Bible, open it up, read the gospel, see how Jesus interacted with people. Learn all you can about Christ. And the more you know, the more confidence spurs and springs up in your heart. And then that leads to point number two. And this is where the rubber meets the road. That is trust Jesus with your whole heart. That, that's where confidence begins, right? Like, I, Jesus, I know, I see in your word, I've seen through experience. I know, I know, now I'm going to trust you. See, trust is where the rubber meets the road of our confidence and our assurance and our belief in Jesus. Knowing leads to confidence. And then number three, repeat steps one and two over and over again. <laughs> right? Right? Know all you can about Jesus and then trust in him. Know all you can about Christ and trust in him. That's the cycle. That's how we live as believers. And our knowing produces confidence. And our confidence leads to bold prayer. Our confidence leads us to confront sin. And our confidence leads to personal holiness. And I pray that we walk in that confidence today. I pray we grow in that confidence. I pray we live that confidence every single day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. I'm so grateful that your word is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God, it, it can speak to us in, in real time right now. God, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that your word does produce confidence in our life as we learn and know and understand more about Christ. God, I'm so grateful that through his sacrifice, we have freedom. God, I'm also thankful for the freedoms we have in this country to worship even right now here today. God, may you be glorified in how we walk this week. God, may we worship you in our lifestyle and with our words, with our mind and our thoughts. Protect us, Lord. And God, above else, we desire to see you glorified and people drawn to your son, that they may also receive freedom and eternal life. God, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.